It's Tuesday, April 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Inflation continues to be at a 40-year high with no signs of letting up. In response, shoppers are starting to change their buying habits and cutting back on staples. Consumers are buying things in smaller quantities and are also switching to store brands to save money. The big question is whether consumer product giants will adjust prices after betting big that people will stick with them. Sharon Turlip, consumer products reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, there's an estimated 7.7 to 23 million people that might have had long COVID. In an effort to find root causes and treatments, patients suffering from these prolonged symptoms are joining with researchers to come up with answers. While that might seem like a given, that is not the usual partnership in place when studying diseases. Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at The Washington Post, joins us for how long COVID is changing medical research. Finally, why are people acting so weird? We are seeing more crime, unruly people, and other strange behavior recently, and it begs the question, what's up with that? Experts suggest a range of things have been influencing people, with stress as the main culprit. People are also drinking more and dealing with isolation. Olga Kazan, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for what's going on with all this weird behavior. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know, these companies have really counted on the fact that even if budgets are tighter, people are really still going to care about things like cleanliness, smells, you know, my laundry being clean. But that may not prove true across the board. Joining us now is Sharon Turlip, consumer products reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Sure. Glad to be here. Well, inflation uh, is currently sitting at a 40 year high. Uh, it's been going on for some time right now. And uh, it's uh, causing consumers to start cutting back on all these staples, things that uh, we buy every day, uh, whatever it could be detergent, diapers, just even regular groceries, meat and everything. It's causing everybody to scale back and maybe not go for those name brands, maybe maybe uh, these private label store brands to kind of cut the cost there. And, uh, you know, while that happens all the time, right, people are always looking for deals and everything. The big question now is how will some of these big companies, Procter & Gamble, Clorox, Kraft, Heinz, how will they start reacting to these, this shift in consumer buying habits? So, Sharon, tell us what we're seeing out there. Sure. And I mean, one of the interesting things about this is that this particular part of the economy, these household staples, you know, from snack foods to laundry detergent to baby diapers, it's been one piece of the economy where as prices have risen and risen and risen, consumers have just really gravitated toward the bigger name, kind of more expensive products. Um, And so it's a real turning point that that's starting to shift. For these big companies, they were making that bet, especially during the pandemic. You know, people were getting these stimulus checks, things like that. They were saying, you know what? People are going to stick with us. They love our brands. We're going to raise the prices to deal with whatever we're dealing with, you know, supply chain issues and whatnot. And they were betting that people were going to stick there. And they were. But now things are different. Sure, they absolutely were. And for Procter & Gamble, which which as, you know, really the biggest player in this area, they started raising prices even before the pandemic as a way to bolster revenues and, you know, and make their company stronger. And then as the pandemic took hold, people were home more. So they had more money to spend. They cared more about how their home smelled and about cleanliness and safety. And they had extra money to spend. And you know, these companies have really counted on the fact that even if budgets are tighter, people are really still going to care about things like cleanliness, smells, you know, my laundry being clean, but that may not prove true across the board. 
Tell me about the shift to these uh, private label, store label brands. And, you know, it kind of it's a give and take, right? So if you're a, a Tide fan or something like that and you switch to something else, I, I think you know in the article someone says it doesn't smell as good. But those are the trade-offs that you're going to take. Uh, you know, other places, let's say, you know, a Costco, for instance, their in-store brand Kirkland, I, I think they have great products, you know. So, But people are looking at this in the back of their head, you know, they're looking for those deals. Um, so tell me a little bit about those shifts because – during the pandemic was a weird thing too, where, you know, suppliers were focusing on the big brands uh, because those are the people that were, were making all the sales. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, there's these brands where there's these private label brands, for lack of a better word, that really are sought after and coveted. And so the pandemic was really an anomaly when it comes to private label, because in the years before the pandemic, private label was taking more and more share because these products weren't the things that you got just because you couldn't have, you know, you didn't have enough money. They started to be desirable. And so two things happened during the pandemic. One was the, you know, kind of gravitation toward known brands and name brands. But also, like you said, some of these private label brands, because they aren't as high margin, the manufacturers de-emphasized them and they weren't available. And so some of them are starting to become more available as shortages let up. Well, what do the big companies do? Like we we mentioned Procter and Gamble and some of these other big ones. Uh, I know you guys got some uh, statements and everything for them, basically saying they they think that people are still still have confidence in their products, still have confidence in their brands. But are they going to change prices to reflect what's going on with inflation, or are they just going to keep keep uh, going away as they have been? The thing with price increases with companies this big, it takes a long time to roll them out. They have to set the stage, make the plan, announce things to retailers. So in many cases, price increases that were announced six months ago, maybe even nine months ago, are only taking hold. So as recently as as very late last year, companies were announcing more price increases and that prices will go up more this year. And it's it would be hard to turn that around. And it would also be difficult for the companies to suddenly start cutting prices when they're dealing with inflation and their supply chain costs are so high. So I don't, you know, nobody's saying that there's going to be a reversal of price increases. I think, you know, the next couple quarterly earnings results are going to be pretty telling. We're going to hear from Procter and Gamble and Clorox and Kimberly Clark and see what they have to say and whether their expectations have changed. We're seeing some sales volume fall down with all of this. Uh, so people are buying a lot of their mainstays in smaller quantities. Now, with this, it's just a, a curiosity of it. I mean, are people just scaling down and just using less stuff? Or are they, uh, you know, is it come back and bite them later because uh, they're buying smaller quantities now? You know, I'll need more of it later. So you're kind of doubling up. I, I know a lot of people try to do that with gas and uh, you end up just uh, filling up twice as much, really. Yeah, sure. And I think that's why the decreased volume in household staples is somewhat telling because you really kind of, you know, no matter how you you need soap, you need toothpaste. So part of this may be that it's harder to buy in bulk and in bulk quantities. So people, if they're pinched, are buying smaller amounts. You know, there are household staples that aren't necessary. Like you don't necessarily need um, fabric softener. You don't necessarily need laundry pods. You can get detergents. So even though it's a staple, people can perhaps use less. They can try to make it stretch further. But it also may be a case of people are just buying smaller amounts that are, in fact, going to end up spending more in the long yeah, run exactly. because they're buying you know smaller quantities of things they're ultimately going to need. Sharon Turlip, consumer products reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Let's <laughs> go.
patient advocacy groups who've found each other online and are putting a lot of real-time data online about what it means to have long COVID have linked up with some of these academic leaders and are working together to try and find some answers. Joining us now is Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Francis. Glad to be with you. Well, let's talk about long COVID and the research that's going on around it. The pandemic, thankfully, finally, right, everything seems to be kind of calming down at the moment, at least here in the United States. People are kind of moving on. Things are all really opening back up. Restrictions are going down. And a lot of researchers are starting to turn their attention more intensely to long COVID. What causes it, the treatments for it, things like that. And what's happening right now in all this research is that patients who are experiencing this are getting a lot more involved in the process. So, Francis, tell us what's going on with this. Yeah, so this is really a little bit of a change from the typical top-down, expert-driven process that you see in clinical trials. Generally, it's the researchers, people who are typically from major academic medical centers, come along with ideas or hypotheses that are testing. And patients are often volunteers. They show up at big medical centers. They hand over their samples or their blood tests or whatever it is they need to show up for. And they're, they're playing pretty much by the, the experts' rules. If you think about long COVID, there were no experts. There were many experts in different areas. So there were cardiologists who were seeing it. There were neurologists who were seeing it. There are nephrologists, there's, there's the kidney experts who are seeing it. There are people who've been trying to figure out what chronic fatigue syndrome or MECFS was, but there was no particular expert for long COVID. So in a way, a movement that was already underway, a patient-driven involvement in research has come to the fore now. And patients, patient advocacy groups who've found each other online and are putting a lot of real-time data online about what it means to have long COVID have linked up with some of these academic leaders and are working together to try and find some answers. Researchers were barely able to identify a lot of the common themes in their descriptions of the symptoms, you know, so not everybody has the same symptoms when they have long COVID. Uh, there could we be some commonality. Right. We don't know what long COVID is, in effect. Um, right. We know that a lot of people are suffering. Some of the cases could be neurodegenerative impacts that, that actually weren't to do with long COVID. Somebody was going downhill with something that wasn't recognized and then they got COVID and come out of it. Others we seem to see a, a clearer link between the, the, the acute illness and then these sequelae as they're caused in medicine. But there's a lot that we need to find out. What's very clear is an awful lot of people are suffering. And, you know, we're talking about millions of people. And you mentioned that we seem to be going into a karma period. We're also not trying anymore to pretend that we're going to get rid of COVID. So if we live with COVID and if a certain percentage of people get these symptoms after having had acute COVID, we may be facing long COVID for years, decades, yeah. I don't know how long to come. <laughs> right. And we need to know what that public health burden is going to be and also how to help people, if possible, to prevent it. And if, we, and if people get it, to treat it before it turns into some of the very extreme symptoms we've seen in a small minority of people. So getting the patients involved in all this is a good thing. We're starting to kind of figure it out a little bit more. But... The priorities are different for all these groups, even uh, for the patients, right? They want immediate treatments. They're the ones that are going through it and uh, having a tough time with yeah. it. So that's what they want. And, you know, researchers are still kind of looking further ahead. But so, so even the priorities are different once you get patients involved. Absolutely. And there are some very good things. I think if you go back to AIDS, you will see that that was an early point of activism when patients came in and said, um, we're willing to take risks which sometimes researchers are not always willing 
to impose on people. You know, I, a patient may say, this is so awful that I'm willing to take such and such a drug, even if it has risks associated with it. So patients come in with all sorts of different priorities. Patients will say to some researchers, you know, I have so much fatigue, I can't do, I can't fill out a survey of the kind you're acquiring of me. They may have priorities in terms of wanting therapies more quickly, more quickly than describing the full uh, phenotypes. So there's a lot going on here. It's a partnership is what we're hoping for, right? Where these differing priorities can work together. One of the huge studies that's going on is the NIH study, which does, you know, on its website, embrace patient perspectives. But it's epidemiological. It's looking at the big patterns. And it's going to take four years before, well, it's a four-year study. They'll probably spin off some clinical trials more quickly. But it's a big project. And it may bring answers to really perplexing issues like chronic fatigue, fatigue syndrome, which has perplexed people for such a long time. And, you know, when we look yeah. at how many people have long COVID, the government estimates anywhere between 7.7 million to 23 million people may have already had long COVID. So there's a lot of people in this group. And, you know, while the patients might want something quick, it is going to be tough to come up with some quick answers. But who else is working on uh, these types of studies? Because there's universities involved, all sorts of things. There are universities, there's some private funding for some of these online efforts. So we've got the full range, really. I mean, patient groups are so interesting at the moment because they do gather so much information online. Uh, Facebook groups gather information online, and you could see it as exploiting patients in some ways to use that material if you don't have the patient's permission. But there's a huge effort, too, to do this in a very responsible way partnering way between academics and the patient groups that are gathering this information. So we're seeing the full range from private investment to national National institutes of health and some foundation investment too. Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. like a little bit more inconvenience and kind of like, you know, and that's like a low level inconvenience. So with all of this, like kind of stress, people are like kind of letting it all out on each other more. Joining us now is Olga Kazan, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Olga. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a simple question, probably a more complicated answer, but why are people acting so weird? So we've been seeing crime go up. Anytime somebody gets on a plane, there's always worries of these unruly passengers. We've seen the stories going on throughout the pandemic. You know, there's all sorts of strange behavior. We saw Will Smith slap Chris Rock at the Oscars. There's a lot of people going through a lot of different things. And uh, for this article, you spoke to a number of experts on on crime, on social norms, on psychology, just to figure out what's going on. I, I think part of it is... We are so tuned in with social media and all that stuff. We see more reports of things happening, but you know, a lot of people are pretty stressed out. That's one of the key things that uh, people suggest is uh, to blame for why people are acting so weird. Yeah, so you really do see this rise in rudeness and incivility. Um, and when researchers kind of ask people who are being rude and uncivil why they're doing it, it's because they say they're stressed and overwhelmed. And the pandemic has just it has created a lot of really stressful 
situations that are also not very rewarding. So, you know, instead of just, you know, going out to dinner with your friends and making a reservation and parking, you know, you're now having to negotiate who's vaccinated and who's going to, you know, are we going to wear masks? Like, is everyone comfortable sitting inside? Oh, my God, there's no outdoor tables. So everyone's just like a little bit more inconvenience and kind of like, you know, and that's like a low level inconvenience. So with all of this, like kind of stress, people are like kind of letting it all out on each other more. Experts also say that the rudeness that we see out there in whatever form it is, is also contagious. You know, we so we see people not caring or just looking out for themselves and maybe in ourselves, we want to do that same thing, too. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's almost like not totally, uh, you know, something that's a conscious process. Like, so this one researcher that I talked to found that uh, she mostly studies rudeness at work and she found that people kind of spread their negativity to their colleagues and their bosses and other people, even if those people were not the source of the negativity. So let's say your boss, you know, yells at you for something and you're feeling really bad. um, And then later you have to work with a colleague on a project. You might snap at your colleague, even though they weren't the ones who were, you know, mean to you just because, you, you know, rudeness is sort of like this contagious force in society. Another thing that experts point to is, People are drinking a lot more right now. That's something that we kind of heard, obviously, throughout the pandemic. I don't know if things have changed now that some of these pandemic restrictions and whatnot have started easing off. But still, we know that uh, people are drinking more. Oh, yeah. People are drinking 14 percent more days a month during the pandemic. But um, that's, I mean, just one metric. There's just a ton of evidence showing that people are just drinking a lot more. They're drinking more frequently. You know, they're drinking before they get on some of these flights. Uh, A lot of, um, you know, car crashes are up and a lot of car crashes happen because people are a little drunk. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that is part of the problem is that people are kind of relying on alcohol to, like, numb the pain. But it's actually making a lot of things worse. Throughout a lot of this stuff, when we see crazy reports on, on TV and on social media and all that, you know, one of the first things people always say is like, wow, well, that person is mentally ill or that person has uh, mental health problems. But you really can't explain it all away just with a blanket statement like that. There are people that might have really, you know, like real health issues on, on that front don't really commit the majority of some of these weird acts that we're talking about. So, so you can't uh, completely explain it away with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of the experts that I talked to wanted to be super clear about that, that even though you might um, see the kind of occasional uh, example of someone with mental illness committing violence, there's just not that many people with severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar. So they're, they're just a tiny percent of the population. So they actually commit just a tiny percent of kind of violent or kind of unusual uh, acts. So, um, so yeah, so while it's tempting to say, like, well, those people need treatment and everyone else is fine, that's kind of not all there is to it. Although depression and anxiety definitely did go up during the pandemic. So that's definitely not helping things. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a tough, uh, like I said, it's a, a very complicated answer to a very simple question. Why are people acting so weird and so crazy? I mean, there's a lot of factors. And, you know, uh, the pandemic, the big disruptor of our lives the past two years plays a big role in just changing everything, right? The isolation that people went through. People are going through a lot uh, as a whole. Olga Kazan, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.